Well, as we head into a new year, we're digging into the book of 2 Corinthians to answer a big question that should be right on the forefront of every Christian's heart and mind. What kind of people do we need to be for God to say, yes, I can use him. Yes, I can use her. That's the kind of man I've been looking for. That's the kind of woman I've been looking for. And to get our answer, we've been digging into the early chapters of 2 Corinthians. And the answer we began to see last week was surprising, wasn't it? Because God doesn't think like we think. And God doesn't choose who we would choose. People who already seem qualified and able. But instead, God most often chooses the broken, the shattered, the weak, as well as giving a limp to the strong in order that he can work through them mightily. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians again and go to chapter 4 because today we're going to dig into chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'm going to ask you to stand. Both campuses, Florence and Fort Thomas, stand because I'm going to read the whole chapter because it's so good. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we've received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe. Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord, and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God. And not of us. We are hard pressed on every side. But not crushed. Perplexed. But not in despair. Persecuted. But not forsaken. Struck down. But not destroyed. Always Caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' 
sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. But since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are, say it, eternal. You may be seated. Now, here's what I want to do today. I want to answer a question that I believe is still rumbling around in some of your heads. Even though I worked hard last week. Despite all I showed you from chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians last week. I believe many of you still have a question rumbling around in your head. And it's this. Brad, are you sure God has called me and equipped me to serve him? Oh, no way. There's got to be, it's got to be somebody else that he's looking for. And you don't have to look any further than verse one of chapter four to get your answer. You don't have to look any further than the first verse of this chapter because this is the way our God works. And so here's my first point. Here's how I would state verse one. When God gave you mercy and saved you, he gave you ministry. It happened at the same time. When God gave you mercy, he gave you ministry. It's a package deal. It's a package deal. God doesn't separate these two things like we do. God never says, now, who do I want to rescue and save? And who do I want to rescue and save and use for my glory to serve me? He doesn't operate that way. He doesn't have two categories of people. He doesn't think that way. He doesn't talk that way. He doesn't operate that way. Look at verse one. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we've received mercy, he's connecting the two and telling you that both, you received both on the same basis. How'd you receive God's mercy? Did you earn God's mercy? Did you qualify for mercy? Did you merit mercy? And that's the same with 
ministry. As, just as you received mercy, you, you don't qualify for ministry. You don't earn it. You don't look better. And he says there, both are given freely by God and he qualifies us for both. As you've received mercy, you've received ministry. But I know that only answers part of your question, right? You still may be saying, okay, Brad, so he's giving me mercy and now he's giving me ministry. But please tell me, has he given me any resources? Has he given me anything to help me serve him? I feel so unqualified, so unable. That's what I want us to dig into today because Paul answers that question with the rest of chapter four. The rest of chapter four, so he opens up. When he gave you mercy, he gave you ministry. And then the rest of chapter four, he tells us what God's given us to help us serve him. So that's what I want to look at. I want to show you four things God has given, not just some Christians, every believer. Regardless of age, skin color, education, financial background, whatever's happened to you, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, every believer has been given these four things that you'll see in chapter four. Here's the first. When God saved you, he gave you his word and the power of the gospel. When God saved you, he gave you his word and the power of the gospel. Look at it in verse two. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth. Two different ways to talk about the same thing. Word of God, truth. You have truth. You have God's word in a day that desperately needs it. As Christians now, God has given you his truth and the power of the gospel. So regardless of what you think you don't have in this life, oh my goodness, you have something that every human being desperately needs. They just don't know it. And year after year after year, we see it gets demonstrated how they don't know it. In fact, they don't want it. They think they don't want it. They don't know it, don't want it and work hard to not see it or hear it. But it's exactly what people need. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. This past year, 2016, don't know if you knew this or not. I'm a word guy. I like words. I like to read. I like words. I like dictionaries. I know. This past year, 2016, Oxford Dictionary chose the word post-truth as its 2016 international word of the year. And they said they chose it because... There was a 2,000% increase in its usage over this past year as compared to 2015. 2,000% increase in people writing and talking and using the term post-truth. Post-truth. So what is post-truth? Oxford Dictionary defines it as this. Post-truth is relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Oh yeah, 
That's why we, ha- we live in a world of sound bites now. That's why you can be so easily slandered. Nobody is thinking. Nobody presents significant, thoughtful arguments. It's a soundbite world. And if I can stir your emotions, if I can get you to emote, it's a soundbite world and it's a very private, personal world. What do I personally think? What do I believe? And what do I feel? What do I think? What do I feel? What do I think? What do I feel? That's why you'll hear people in their conversations and you ask them questions. Well, I just, I just have always kind of felt, I feel and I believe. And when I say, how did you come to that conclusion based on, that's my favorite question, based on, you just get this look like based, it doesn't have to be based on anything. If I think it, if I feel it, it's probably right. It's worth living for. Shocking, shocking. Doesn't matter what the facts are. What do I feel? What do I personally believe regardless of any basis for it? In other words, the prefix post does not mean so much after as as it implies an atmosphere in which something has become altogether irrelevant. Facts and substance and basis and truth has become irrelevant. What do I feel? What do I personally believe? And for what it's worth, post-truth should not be confused with truthiness. Do you know that's a word? Let me help you. That was the 2006 word of the year from Merriam-Webster. They chose truthiness as the 2006 word of the year. And that was made popular by Stephen Colbert. And the definition of truthiness is believing something that feels true, even if it's not supported by fact. It's like we live in a world where, hope there's no young children here, everybody still believes in Santa Claus. I just, yeah, yeah, that's what I feel. No basis in fact. The cookies were gone, the milk was slightly drank. Yes. So you can see we've been on a downhill slide regarding the place and importance of truth for a long time, long time. And yet folks, don't, don't back off. Don't scream it. Please don't hear me saying scream truth. It matters how we present truth. Speak the truth in and listen, 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 ask questions before you speak so that you'll speak more to where they're coming from and where they're hurting most. But folks, at the end of the day, even after you've asked questions, even if you're filled with love, we must speak the truth of God's word and our culture actually desperately needs it. Needs it. Truth, truth. You've got God's word, truth, and the power of the gospel. But our world keeps coming up with new ways to marginalize truth and maximize personal feelings and belief systems. But it's disastrous. That's why Jesus said in John 8, 32, the reason this is so important is, yes, truth, but not just for debate. Jesus said in John 8, 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall do what? What does it do for human beings? Set you free. Oh, listen, people are not set free by by going further and further into what do I feel? What do I feel and what do I personally think? Even if there's no basis in fact for it. What do, I, what do I feel? What do I think? And it actually leads to further confusion, greater bondage, further confusion. And the, and the world keeps saying, you're free to think what you want. You're free to go with your feelings. Go with, oh, be authentic. That's what it's always pitched as. Be real. 
Yeah, be real stupid when you go with your feelings. They just leave off that next word. Oh, it's very real. Really stupid. It leads to greater bondage. It le- if we could have solved our problems and gotten out of this mess, we would not have needed a savior and a revelation from God. We need his word. And our culture still needs his word. You've got the word of God and the power of the gospel. So listen, be careful, Christians, that you don't compromise it, revise it, or water it down. I think it's interesting in verse 2, look at verse 2 again. Not handling the word of God deceitfully. That, I don't know what comes to your mind with that phrase, but let me give you some clarity. The Greek word right there was a word that was used to dilute wine and water something down. Don't water down God's word. I know you feel it. You think it just feels awkward. Does gender still matter? Did God create men and women? Yes. Don't, comp- don't water it down. Is homosexuality still a sin? Yes, so is fornication and adultery. Please hear me. It's not a greater sin than other sins, but it's still a sin. We can't water down God's word. Does marriage matter? Did God design marriage for one man, for one woman, for life? Yes. So many ways the culture is not thinking that, not saying that, not going that way. And you cannot, I'm watching Christians water down God's word in in an effort, they say, so that people will hear us and we'll have a seat at the table. Folks, you'll get a seat at the table and have nothing to say that will help them than what they're already thinking themselves. The goal is not a seat at the table. The goal is to continue to provide truth for our culture that is crashing and burning in confusion and bondage. Don't water it down. Look at verse 3. Paul moves from truth to the objective truth of the gospel. In verse 3, he speaks of the gospel that is nothing more than shorthand. That's just a simple word all through the Bible to capture the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to solve our biggest problem, our sin problem, that separates us from a holy God and would land us in an eternal hell. The gospel is that God sent his perfect son to keep the law, obey God perfectly, give his life as the final, ultimate, all-sufficient sacrifice in payment for the sins of men and women like you and me and rose again from the dead, conquering sin and Satan and darkness and giving us the only hope that we could have. That's the gospel. Gospel, he speaks of in verse three. But I think it's interesting. Notice what's going on in verse four. It's not just our culture who doesn't want to hear truth. There's someone else working as hard as he can to help them not hear truth and to help them not see truth. Who is it? Satan. Little G. Little God of this world. For whatever reasons, you can take it up with God. The scriptures don't tell us. God has given Satan a measure of freedom right now still to, to, to run around and to cause confusion and to deceive. The God of this world or age, little g, is working hard to try to keep people from seeing and hearing this message. So when God saved you, he gave you his word, the truth of his God. Do you, do you understand all of it perfectly? No, I don't. But 
oh my goodness, you understand it in ways you never did before you were a believer. And you pick it up and say, this makes no sense. This makes no sense. This makes no sense. You can understand God's word, his truth that speaks to us on all issues of life. How should I live? How should I think? What should I value? What matters most? And you've got this glorious message, this good news of the gospel. Let me show you a second thing God gave you. You say, well, what do I have? I feel so unable, so insufficient, so weak, so broken. You got the power of God's word and the gospel. But secondly, when God saved you, he gave you your own personal testimony. You have a story. You have a personal story to tell. When God saved you, he gave you your own personal testimony. Look at it in verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. That same God who in Genesis spoke light into darkness is the same God spiritually who had to speak light into your dark, dead heart. For the light, the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has shone in, say it, our hearts. This is personal It's not just you running around talking about something that you think is true. You've experienced this, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where's all that found? Light, knowledge, glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Your darkened mind and heart has been enlightened to not understand all of or grasp all of, but some of God's glory and goodness and light. Prior to salvation, you cared nothing about the glory of God. You were in darkness. But now it's shown in our hearts. So if you're a Christian here today, the truth of God's word has exploded. The truth and light of God's word and the gospel has exploded in your own heart to show you the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You've seen that. You've experienced that for yourself. So yes, you have the objective truth of God's word and the gospel. But you also have a personal testimony of what God has done in your life. And it's worth telling. Because there are other people that God is going to put in your path providentially. Who are going through some of the very same things You were struggling with before God had mercy on you and opened your blind eyes and took out a heart of stone and shone light into the darkness. It will not be an accident if you're ready. Have your story ready to share with someone. You're going to be close to people at work, the gym, the neighborhood, in-laws during holidays who are struggling with some of the very same things you were. You have a testimony. But here's what I, where I want you to be careful. Let's connect verse 6. Our own heart's testimony with verse 7. With verse 7. Because yes, you have a story. But you better make sure your story talks about the treasure. The treasure. Sometimes you hear people's story. And it is amazing. It is a big fat mess. But when the dust settles, there wasn't enough said about Jesus 
and the gospel. There is a difference between your testimony and sharing the gospel. Your testimony is a way to connect with people for them to realize, oh, you too? I'm not the only one. And you have their attention. Oh, but you must give them the treasure. You must give them the treasure. The gospel and Jesus Christ is the treasure. Look at verse 7. But we have this, say it, treasure in earthen vessels. We have the person of Jesus Christ in our lives. We have an understanding of the gospel as that treasure that changes your life radically. In other words, verse 7 is saying your life, your life, my life, doesn't matter who you are, has become a container, a container of precious treasure. As you head into a new year, I don't know what your finances are. I don't know how your retirement accounts are going. I don't know what your employer's doing regarding matching percentages, whatever. I don't know how the market's doing if you're out there investing in anything. But listen to me. If you're a believer, you are rich. You have a treasure. A treasure. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. You're a container of precious treasure. So regardless of how broken you are, how poor your circumstances have been or still are, you now possess treasure and carry around a treasure every day. Just be careful that as you share your story and your testimony that you make much of the treasure and make much of Jesus. Bring it back to Jesus. Bring it back to the treasure. Because notice, look at verse 5, how he stresses this. For we do not preach ourselves. And I don't think that just means preach saying, oh, come to me and I'll, I'll change your life. I think sometimes your story can be so much about you, you're preaching yourself and not Jesus. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord, and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. The gospel and the glory are the treasure you carry around. So listen, if you're still thinking, but I'm so ordinary. I'm so average. I'm so undistinguished. God would never use me. That's a lie. He puts his gospel treasure and the very person of his son in clay pots. Why? Why does he do it this way? He does it on purpose this way. That the excellence of the, say it, power may be of God. And not of us. Here's what this means. The more broken you are, the more weak you look, the more damaged, the more hesitant and perhaps ungifted, the greater chance you actually have of getting this right. And of no one making the mistake that any of this power is inherently coming from you, yourself. You're not the source. People are left saying, got to be something else going on here. Because, well, look at her. Look at him. And that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing at all. 
God is looking for clay pots and often it's those that are chinked and cracked and broken, look like there's been a lot of use that serve him better because it's easier for the mistake not to be made. Oh, it must be them. It must just be them. It must be them. That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Here's the other thing that's encouraging. And I know this is hard. You have to push back hard. Our world is all about image. Our world's all about image, image, image. Our God is about content, substance, content, substance, not image. He's not a soundbite God. Duh. 66 books. Take you a while to read this. He's not a soundbite God. He's a God of content, substance. But we live in a world that stresses the snazzy container, right? The glitzy brochure, the flashy presentation. Not God. He doesn't need any of that. In fact, he prefers simple clay pots that won't get in the way. If you feel average, below average, damaged, your ability to serve God and share the gospel and have him get the glory is actually ahead of some others. You're actually way ahead of some others who feel powerful, wise, gifted, self-sufficient. Because we're all just clay pots. The sooner you understand that, the sooner God can even begin to use you greatly. And that leads into my third thing I want to show you what he's given you. And this is often what causes clay pots to begin to realize you're a clay pot. It's this third gift. I'll put it to you this way. When God saved you, he signed you up for a special curriculum and enrolled you in a certain school. You know what it is? The SSOA, the Sovereign School of Adversity. The Sovereign School of Adversity. That's right. He sends every one of his children into the same school. Nobody gets a different one. Look at it beginning in verse 8. We are hard pressed on every side. But not crushed. We are perplexed. But not in despair. And, And that word, literally in the Greek, that phrase is actually, we are perplexed. And he uses the exact same word, but not utterly perplexed. You say, okay. But isn't that really right where we live? We live on that fine line. And I appreciate how verses 8 and 9 are worded. There's not huge differences. You know, it's not like we are untouched, cancer-free, unemployment-free. All my kids love Jesus while the world has horrible things happening. These are fine distinctions. You're like, hmm. I... How about we as God's kids are not pressed at all. We're not pressed, we're blessed. You can find that on TV this afternoon, but I'm using the Bible right now. We are hard pressed. A little bit on one side and all the rest is cushy. And what do you say? On. Isn't that how it feels sometimes? Oh my goodness. I thought I was God's child and uh, we're hard pressed on. Every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not utterly perplexed. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. He doesn't forsake us. We are 
and we think, I don't want to go down. We are struck down, but not destroyed. And that word in the Greek for struck down is actually a technical term that refers to a wrestler who gets slammed to the mat by his opponent. Is that not what the Christian life feels like sometimes? I just got, I can't breathe. I just got slammed to the mat. He didn't say you wouldn't. He didn't say you wouldn't. But there's, it's important though, there's four but nots. I know in the New King James, I don't know why they did this. They made one of them a yet. It's the exact same word in the Greek. But not, but not, but not, but not. Because God wants us to understand, yes, this. But don't be sloppy and careless in your thinking to think that you're over here. Yes, pressed on all sides, but not crushed. Yes, perplexed, but not utterly perplexed in despair. Yes, persecuted, but not forsaken by God. Yes, struck down, slammed to the mat, but not destroyed. You say, Brad, it all sounds bad to me. Why should I be encouraged by this? It all sounds bad to me. And why Why make such distinctions? Oh, listen to me. A, this can help you to not be as surprised and taken back by some of all this. When you're pressed on all sides. When you feel persecuted. When you feel perplexed. Uh, to say, okay, God's word said this was going to happen. Here's, here's the point I want to make. Paul, Paul understood something. Paul is working hard to make some distinctions. He's saying we're this, but not this. This, but not this. And here's why. These distinctions are worth holding on to, folks. When you face adversity and trials and suffering and confusion, and you will, you will Be careful how you describe what you're going through. Be careful the words that you choose. You better know how to think about the adversity and to think about it properly. Here's how I'd say it to you. To think about it properly, you have to describe it accurately. Words matter. Words matter. Words matter. Here's why. The way you choose to describe the adversity you're going through, track with me, ultimately begins to shape your theology. You say, oh, I don't have that. You do. You're all theologians. It's just a question of are you a good one or a bad one? But you're all theologians. You are shaping up a personal theology, trying to connect the dots of God, broken world, my personal pain, Jesus, Holy Spirit, prayer. Woo! You are connecting the dots in some way. You are a theologian. You're shaping up a theology. I would encourage you to shape it up with God's word instead of just what you feel, what you think, what you heard growing up, what seems to make sense. But you're a theologian. I would encourage you to be a biblical theologian. But here's what's going on. The words you choose to use to describe the adversity you're going through begins to ultimately shape your theology. And as you shape your theology, it frames your thinking. And as your thinking is framed, it feeds your feelings, 
which in most cases then dictates what you choose to do or not do next. How do you respond? I'm gonna walk through it again because I think I want you to get this. How you describe what you're going through will ultimately shape your theology and that frames your thinking which then feeds your feelings which most often will dictate what you think you can do or not do next. So when you see somebody going through something and then whoop, they do this, you just didn't see a couple other steps and they can happen fast, but they were in play. What kind of theology have you been shaping up? And what are you thinking? And that feeds how you're feeling in the midst of it. And that is gonna be so strong that it's going to move you to either do or not do certain things next. So all this matters. Words, I'd put it to you this way. Words are the fabric of ideas that shape your personal outlook and attitudes on life. That's why the Bible makes so much of our thinking and renewing your minds and thinking, taking every thought captive. And if there's anything true or lovely or good of good, think on these things. Your thinking matters and your words matter as to how you're describing what is going on in your life. Now, I know some of you might be thinking if you've been in our church family a while, I'm glad you are. Hey, Brad, I thought we were supposed to rise above our feelings and do what God's word says. Yes, we are. But wouldn't it be nice to not be waking up with a truckload of unbiblical, horrible feelings that you're trying to rise above? Those feelings have been produced and fed by unbiblical thinking that is a part of your horrible, unbiblical theology. Start watching what you're saying and how you're choosing to describe what you're going through. And watch if it doesn't impact your feelings and make it not quite so hard to choose to do what you should next. Words. Paul says, you're this. Oh yeah, I'm not gonna water it down. I'm not gonna whitewash it. I'm not gonna try to make it any better than it is. Oh, you're this. But you are not this. Some of you, have been thinking of yourself and describing yourself right over here. Don't be so sloppy. Don't be so careless. Don't be so fast and loose with words. You're here. You're here. And you're here for a purpose. Maybe that's that's what's rising up now. Okay, whatever, Brad. Why in the world would a good, loving God send his kids into the SSOA? Oh, he's gonna tell us. He doesn't leave you guessing why he signs us up for this. You can find the answer in verses 10 to 12. Look at it. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live, this is so important, and I think we're so slow to get it. He actually says the same thing two times in a row with just slight modification. I want you to look. In these two verses, he uses two words two times. Twice he uses the word that. And that's the henna clause I've been telling you about. And twice he uses the word manifested. Now watch it. For always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That. What's the purpose? That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. That, what's the purpose? 
that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Two henna clauses that clearly signal why. Why this dying? Why this suffering? Why this adversity? Two times he says why. That the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal body. Manifested through us. The Greek word manifested that he uses two times there means to be clearly revealed or made known. Clearly revealed or made known. Now I want you to connect verses 10 and 11 back with what Satan, his agenda in verse 4. 3 and 4 actually. So we've got Satan, it tells us, who is seeking to veil, veil the gospel. If our gospel is veiled... It's veiled to those who do not believe whose minds he's blinded, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus should shine. Satan is working as hard as he can to veil. The word veil in verse 3 means to bury something or conceal it and try to hide it. Then in verse 4, where it says blinded, oddly enough, that word blinded is actually a Greek word that means to burn smoke. But is it not true when there's a lot of smoke you can't see and your eyes are burning? What a picture of what Satan is doing. Satan is constantly in our world working as hard as he can to conceal, bury, hide the glory of Jesus and put up a smoke screen constantly burning that people will not see, cannot see the glory of of Jesus Christ and the gospel. So what's God got going on for him while Satan does this? Here's where we come into play. God has millions of Christians all over the world and every tribe, tongue, people, language, real people who are containers of the treasure. And listen, how's that treasure gonna be seen? Hope this doesn't freak you out. The process of less of us and more of him. You know, John 3.3, where John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. That most often happens best through suffering and adversity is where the just begins to be less of us and more of him. That the life of Jesus may be manifested, made known, revealed, Through Christians who are broken, suffering, facing adversity. And yet people say, why would you still have joy? Why are you not bitter? Why do you make these choices? Why do you live with these values? The life of Jesus may be manifested through us. Well, quickly, let me show you one more thing that God has given us. And it's a cluster of things, actually. It's a cluster of things that you find right at the end of the chapter, verses 14 to 18. Paul gives us a final cluster of new things that you have that you didn't have when you were lost, before you knew Jesus, before you were a Christian. You have, look at me a minute, you have a new hope. You have a different kind of hope. 1 Peter 1 called it a living hope. That was rooted in the resurrection. You have a new hope. Your hope is not fixed in this world now. In this tiny 
temporal bubble. It's not fixed in grandkids. It's not fixed in the image of your health. It's not fixed in your finances. It's not fixed in your career advancement. It's fixed outside this world now. And it's a much safer hope now. And it's a much better hope now. It's a much more powerful hope. Your hope is different. And you see it in verse 14. Look at it in verse 14. There's your hope now. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with him and present us together. My hope is in the resurrection outside of this world. Did you know what's so great about the doctrine of the resurrection? The hope of the resurrection is not just, oh, oh, wow. When the world ends, you'll be taken out out of all this suffering and brokenness and sin. Oh no, resurrection is much better than that. It's so much better than that. The doctrine of the resurrection says that God is actually going to redeem, restore, remake all things. There's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth. Oh, that'll be so much more satisfying than just out of here. Read Revelation 21 and the new heaven and new earth are going to come down and God will be with us. You'll see all that was wrong made right. And as human beings created in the image of God, that's something we long for. Justice. And it's better than just out of here. It's watch this become what God intended it to be. And there's a sense of triumph over our enemy and sin. Along the lines of what Sam Gamgee asked Gandalf in Lord of the Rings when he said, he began to understand some of this. Is everything sad going to become untrue? Yes. Everything sad is going to become untrue. Hope of the resurrection. But secondly, you got something else new. You've got a new motivation for why you do what you do. Brand new motivation for why you do what you do. And you can see it in verse 15. Two pieces to this new motivation. And they're both captured in verse 15. This is why Paul did what he did. And it is why we should do what we do. Grace would spread to others. And that glory would go to God, that grace may spread. As a believer now, you're a container of treasure and you have the gospel. If you jumped over to 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, you'd see that you're a steward of the manifold grace of God. You get to be a channel of grace to people and bring glory to God. Grace to people, glory to God. I want to use my gift so it'll spread grace, whether it's a quiet behind the scenes gift or a bold up front gift. They all are means of grace. You get to spread grace to other people in a graceless age. Oh, how people need truth and oh, how people need grace. Remember, we heard in John, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through our Lord Jesus. You get to be a means of grace And truth, you have God's word and God wants to use you to spread grace and you do it for the glory of God, for the glory of God. Grace to other people, glory to God. And then quickly, you have a new perspective on what matters most. You can see that in verses 16 to 18. We don't lose heart, even though our outward man is is perishing. The inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction, which is... For a moment, 
And I want you to get a phrase. He actually says, he doesn't say our light affliction, which is but for a moment, doesn't compare with the glory you're going to have one day. He talks that way in Romans 8. You can find that. He's saying something else here that's even better. That affliction, whatever you're going through in this life, is actually working. Two words. Say it. For us. It feels against us, right? The hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. That's all working against me. Uh Uh-uh. Is working for us. A far more exceeding. He almost runs out of superlatives to stick in front of what he's about to say next. A far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Here's what Paul is telling us, and I will not pretend to understand it fully, but I think it's worth holding on to. Paul is actually saying right here in that verse about our suffering. Somehow our suffering in this world actually increases or adds to the weight of our glory in the next. It's working for us. So as I close, let me touch on a question we're going to dig into for the full hour next week. What happens to you when you start to get a hold of all that God has given you to help you serve him? Paul mentions it twice in this chapter. Verse 1 and verse 16. We do not, say it, lose heart. When you start to get a hold of all that God has given us as believers to serve him, you don't lose heart. Listen to me. Circumstances are never the reason Christians fall out of serving God. It's always because they've lost sight of all that he has given them. And many times you can be swallowed up in your serving and lose sight of Jesus and his glory and his goodness in the midst of it all. Don't let it happen to you. Don't lose sight of what God has given you and don't lose sight of your savior in the midst of your serving. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for what you've given us. You have not just called us and thrust us into a world, scary, dark, broken, confused world and said, go, do it. God, thank you for all you've given us in our brokenness. And we don't have to be strong. We don't have to be the smartest. We don't have to be the most gifted. We don't have to be the most courageous. God, thank you that it's your delight to put treasure in clay pots. And to manifest the light and glory of your son through broken, weak vessels. Use us for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.